0: Very good morning to you, Um, uh, it's really lovely to be with you again, if I haven't met you before, my name is Matthew and um, I'm delighted to be with you at this time of year, as Johnny said actually for me also, this is my favorite time of year, I love this part of the season, I'm an October child, I was born in October, I'm a child of the fall, okay it's a joke, But I love the smells, the tastes. I love fire pits. I love the colors and the richness of this time of year. I love the seasons of mist and mellow fruitfulness. Close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him how to load and bless. With fruit, the vines that round the thatched eaves run. Anybody know who wrote that? Seasons of mist and mellow fruitfulness. Oh, come on. What do they teach you in school these days? It's Keats, written by John Keats. But I do, I love this time of year. I love it because it suits my somewhat melancholic character. I know that I smile a lot. It's because I'm a pastor and I'm paid to do it. But I have a certain melancholic strain and I love this sort of sense that something is dying, but something is also coming. The planting is already beginning to happen. There is new seed being sown. I, was, I live in a little cul-de-sac of townhouses. We've got to know our neighbors quite well over the years. One of them is a delightful lady called Lisa, and she does most of the planting in the area. She keeps all the beds, um, you know, well-planted and well-stocked. And I came home. a couple of weeks ago, and it was that little cold spell. Do you remember? There was this cold snap. And I came back, and she was watering the earth. And in my sort of pastoral way, I said, what on earth are you doing? She said, well, you know, I've just planted some bulbs for next year in the ground, so I'm watering the bulbs. I thought, really, that's extraordinary. I'm not a gardener. I I didn't know that you could plant anything now. And I thought, "That, that takes quite a lot of trust, doesn't it? That you plant a bulb in the freezing cold, you water it, and then you leave it right throughout the winter. And you have no idea what's going on under the earth. But in the spring, you hope that something is going to come, that there will be a beautiful plant. And it spoke to me a little bit about this time of year and what it means to live the Christian life, because that, in a way, is our story. We are something that is dying, if you will. We are the old man or the old woman is passing. There's something being sown in us. There's going to be a lot of waiting, but there's something that we're looking forward to that is coming. It's the nature of the salvation story that we're living in. And I just want to think with you for a few minutes this morning about that nature of the salvation story that we're in. Because I think it's super important that we understand what the salvation story that we read in the scriptures is really like. Because we live in a fix-it age, we live in a let's-get-it-done country, it's actually quite difficult, I think, for us to understand the kind of rhythms, if you will, of salvation. But Luke, in this part of this gospel, his opening, really, of the gospel, tells this story of the birth of John the Baptist. And he's the only one who does it. It's not in any of the other Gospels. And I think he tells it for a reason, because he's saying, look, look at what salvation looks like. Look at the pattern of salvation, because I'm about to tell you a story of salvation through Jesus Christ that fits that pattern. So if you want to understand and have confidence In the story of salvation that you're living in, you need to understand what it feels and look like. You need to understand that you can trust in the seed, that you can trust in the waiting, and that you can trust in the outcome. Would you pray with me and then we'll have a little look at this part of Luke's gospel. Father God, this morning, we are, as we read your scriptures, waiting on you. It's your word that we need for our lives, for this moment now. So by your spirit, I pray that you would speak through your scriptures to our hearts, that we would go away feeling and knowing your presence in our lives. And that you have spoken a word for now. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke opens uh, the gospel uh, in a very deliberate style. You know, I opened uh, this morning with a poem, not just to make me look like a sophisticated Englishman, which I obviously am, but because um, actually Luke, uh, the style of his writing is quite particular. John Drury, who's a theologian, said this, you know, the beginning uh, of Luke's opening has a general tone of a rich and resonant fairy tale. Not because it is a fairy tale, but it's deliberately somewhat exotic storytelling because he's trying to evoke an emotional response, an emotional connection. This is not just data for us to process. Luke wants us to respond at, an emotion, at a deep level. And this is what we read. In the days of Herod, once upon a time, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. So his wife was of a priestly stock, and he was a priest. They're of good lineage. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had No child. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, when you hear that story, what connection can you make with the Scriptures? And I'm talking about the whole Old and New Testament. Which couple do you immediately make a connection with? Abraham. Absolutely. A righteous couple walking blamelessly before God... The wife is barren, and they long for a child. It's a deliberate evocation of Abraham. And Luke is wanting to tell us right from the get-go, look, the story I'm about to tell you has a seed that was planted a long, 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 long time ago. There's a seed of the story of salvation that is literally thousands of years in the making. Remember that. As you hear what's about to happen. The seed had been trusted throughout Israel's long story of salvation. Throughout the, the, the fathers of Israel. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob throughout the exodus into the promised land. And every so often a prophet would come along to remind Israel of that seed. The promise that they were carrying. And we read from Isaiah 700 years before Luke. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Something's coming. May straighten the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. Justice is coming. And the uneven ground shall be made level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. God's going to reveal himself and all flesh shall see it together. This seed, this promise that's been carried from the days of Abraham, one day we're going to see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's a promise of healing and salvation. And I wonder as Zechariah walked into the temple, I wonder what hope he was carrying. I wonder what hope you carry. As you came to church this morning, I wonder what seed, as it were, you were carrying Because it's a little bit, actually, when you look a little harder at the text, it's not as clear as you first think what Zechariah's hope really was. Let's read on. We're in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, that sounds a little bit like Johnny coming up and serving communion every week, but it's not what, the way it was. Zechariah was one of uh, uh, um, 24 divisions of priests. There were a lot of priests around. It's more like everybody here is a priest, okay? That's actually right, but that's what it's like. And every week, we cast a lot for somebody to come and serve communion, But actually, you only get to do that once in your lifetime. That's what's happening with Zechariah. This is an extraordinary moment in his life. He has literally won the lottery. There's no guarantee that you ever, ever get to do this thing. You will be the priest who goes into the temple and serves in the holy place. So that's what Zechariah is doing And he goes in and this is what happens. This is what Luke records. And there appeared to him, to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. Well, you might say, well, of course, you walk in. This is your great moment and you walk into the Holy of Holies and there is standing an angel. And the angel says to him, do not be afraid. All the way through. Luke's gospel, whenever you get these angelic visitations, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. How many of us have ever got to the point where we felt like, oh, Lord, if you would only hear my prayer. I don't feel like you've heard me. So the question is, well, what is Zechariah praying for? And perhaps you say, well, the answer is obvious. Duh, remember, childlessness is stalking his family. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. Maybe that's what Zechariah was praying for. I don't know Zechariah, I can't ask him. But maybe not. Here's another possibility. Because Luke is setting up an expectation for us, his listeners. Zechariah is a righteous and blameless man going into the temple, his one-time opportunity, carrying what hope? Well, Luke is going to show us another couple a little bit later, just the next chapter, who are very similar to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna. Do you remember Simeon and Anna? When Jesus... After Jesus' birth, when he's presented in the temple, there are two older people again, both of whom were righteous and walked before the Lord. And in Luke's gospel, he's very clear what they have been waiting for. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, same formula, waiting for what? The consolation of Israel. And then a little bit later we hear, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. If you're advanced in years, thank God for you. Thank God for older people in the church who have carried faith for a long time. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and praying night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak uh, of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. I think it's more likely that Zechariah, that was his hope. He was one who, like the rest of Israel, like the people of God, was carrying the hope of Israel. That one day God's promises would be fulfilled. That justice would come. That one day the hoped for Messiah, the king, the one who would bring God's rule and reign to earth, would come. And it's a bit of a surprise to Zechariah when the angel says to him, Actually, you're going to have a son. That's a surprise. That wasn't on the cards. Zechariah has been waiting for a long time. If the first part of salvation is learning to trust in the promise, trust in the seed, then the second part is learning to wait well. There's an awful lot of waiting in the scriptures. Have you noticed that? From Abraham to Jesus, about 2,000 years, from Isaiah, about 700 years. The moment that we're reading comes after a 400-year silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where apparently absolutely nothing is happening whatsoever. There's just an awful lot of waiting. And it's difficult for us, for me, in my age, in our age, to believe that waiting is anything other than a bit of a waste of time, really. It's a bit like being at the DMV. You just want to get it over and done with. It's just a bit in in between, isn't it? Just waiting. I tried to think in my uh, own life. I was lying in bed with my wife, and I was saying, "Darling, have you got any stories of waiting?" And we went, "Mm, "Um, um, good stories of waiting." Well, we waited. Um, no. It's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? I couldn't think of a single good story of me having patiently waited for something. I mean, I had to wait, but I couldn't think of any times when I've intentionally known that I was waiting and trusting. I could not one. As a culture, we think of wasting as a bit of a waste of time. We're like the kids in a car traveling to the beach. Are Are we nearly there yet? No. Are we nearly there yet? No. Are we nearly there yet? No. Are we nearly at salvation yet? No. Is Jesus coming yet? No. We're very poor at waiting. Henry Nguyen wrote this. In our particular historical situation, Henry Nguyen was a great Catholic writer and thinking, one who really practiced the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines of Christianity. In our particular historical situation, he's writing contemporaneously, waiting is even more difficult because we're so fearful. Anybody resonate with that? No? Am I the only one who senses there's an awful lot of fear around right now? You can nod your heads. You don't have to nod your heads. Waiting is even more difficult because we're so fearful. One of the most pervasive emotional in the atmosphere around us is fear. People are afraid. Afraid of inner feelings. Afraid of other people. And also afraid of the future. Fearful people have a hard time waiting. Because when we're afraid, we want to get away from where we are. And then he goes on. It impresses me, therefore, that all the figures who appear on the first pages of Luke's gospel, are waiting. Zechariah and Elizabeth are waiting. Mary is waiting. Simeon and Anna, who were there at the temple when Jesus was brought in, are waiting. The whole opening scene of the good news is filled with waiting people. And of course, you and I, we are 2,000 years into the Christian story, aren't we? We're 2,000 years into the story of Advent that comes once a year, just like Christmas. It's never a surprise. I've worked in the church for a while now, and it always amazes me how we seem constantly surprised that Christmas has come around again, and we're not quite ready for it. But 2,000 years of waiting with that hope Where are you with it this morning? Where am I? We begin to sort of dumb that hope down just a little bit because come on, we've been saying Jesus is going to come back for 2,000 years, haven't we? Perhaps that's just a bit of a fairy story. Perhaps. Perhaps Christianity needs to let go of that one. 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus. We're 2,000 years in now. I'm not predicting anything, by the way. But it's difficult to wait, isn't it? It's difficult to wait. And perhaps the greater the story, the greater the promise, the greater the waiting will be. And the angel's promises to Zechariah are not insignificant ones. Let's read on in verse 13. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, says the angel, and you shall call his name John. That's John the Baptist. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. That's a promise. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Not drink wine or strong drink. It's a little echo there. Remember anybody in the scriptures? Not allowed to drink wine. Samson. No. Maybe that's intentional. Who knows? And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Wow. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was Israel's greatest prophet. This is not a small promise. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Johnny said this time of Advent is traditionally a time when we remember to be prepared. It's not actually we're just supposed to be prepared for four weeks before Christmas. It's just we're supposed to remember to be prepared all the time. We're supposed to live in expectant hope of what God might do in your life, in our lives, in the life of this nation, in this church. That's the default position. Waiting in the scriptures is never a waste of time. It's not passive, it's expectant, alive, hopeful, it's Advent. Actually, I did think of one story where I had to do a little learning of how to wait. And before I became a Christian at age 32, I was living what you might call a typical blokey secular life when it came to girls. And then I became a Christian, and after a little while I figured out that that wouldn't do anymore anymore. That I had to stop doing whatever I'd been doing before and I had to sort of be single, a single guy on my own. And so then there was about five years, which for me at the time seemed an absolute eternity, where I was basically a single celibate man. And the interesting thing for me is in that time, there was a lot of wrestling that went on inside me that I had not really dealt with. Because I was just so busy getting on with life and doing the stuff that you do. But actually, in that sort of absence, in that period of waiting, God began to work in me and show me how I looked at other people, women in particular. And there wasn't anything terribly wicked about it. It was just typical. And it wasn't until I'd really got to the end of myself in that, that I said a very quick and unconscious prayer, walking along. The street in London one day, which was, Lord, when it comes to women, something on the lines of this, I don't know what to do. I give up. I, I, I really don't know how to do this anymore. I, I'm just really bad. That's it. I don't know how to make the right choice. I don't know who's going to be good for me. I, I just don't know. I seem to get it wrong. I just give up. And it was as if God in that waiting had been working deeply in me, and it was only about 3 or 4 or 5 or 6 months later i can't remember exact timing that i was married to kim my wife and there had been a profound transformation and then hallelujah salvation in the form of kim okay so that's a little microcosm but that's the kind of pattern of what salvation is like this story is long there's a seed that's been planted Thousands of years ago. It's not new. The promises are secure. There's a lot of waiting. But then right at the end, when you get closest to that moment of salvation, whether it's the big salvation story or a little moment like I've just described to you, right at the end is often the most confusing. It's often where trust is asked most of all. There's almost like a crisis of confidence when you get very close to the thing that God is going to do. And that's what happens to Zechariah. Zechariah has just had this extraordinary promise from an angel in this one time that he's got to go into the temple. His immediate question is, surely not, Lord. Surely that's not going to happen. Surely that's not possible. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old, how, you know, how am I going to have a son? Don't be ridiculous. For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Exactly what Abraham said to God all those years ago. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, Zechariah, and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. It's a little hard, isn't it? I mean, come on, poor Zechariah. But remember where this story is heading. We're heading towards Mary, her visitation by the angel Gabriel, and a virgin birth. So Luke is trying to set something up in us. When the salvation that was sown a long time ago that you have been waiting maybe for hundreds of years, maybe in your own life for a long time, when it comes, it's likely to be rather like a birth. sudden. Suddenly it's just there. And it won't look exactly like you expected You need to know that if you're going to live in the story of salvation. The salvation you hope for, particularly if it's been going on for a long time and you start to imagine what it will look like when it comes, the more you do that, the more you will try to control the outcome. But when salvation comes, it won't look like you expected it. And Luke is setting this up because even though the promise is thousands of years old, even though Israel has been carrying it and waiting on it for long, when Jesus come, they don't recognize him. They don't see it. It's not what they expected. They weren't expecting. Israel was not expecting Jesus, the son. And so many missed it. It's one of the great themes of Luke's gospel. You know, you can write the story of salvation in reverse. It goes basically like this. Number one, don't trust God with the outcome. You fix it. Okay? Just, you know roughly what the the shape is, what it should look like, what the world, the problems of the world. You go fix it. Because you can fix it, don't bother waiting for God. Just get on with it. Quick as possible, please. Which, of course, means you don't really trust the nature of the seed, that the seed has in it. A time. There's a right time for it and a wrong time. And the result of living like that is what? Fear. Anxiety. Responding immediately to everything that happens around you. But salvation does come. It came for Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is how we finish. um, The the passage finishes. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. There was a delay and then he comes out and he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, ended, time of service in the temple, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. For five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. You see, if you follow God as a good Israelite, if you are righteous what children are a blessing. How come God has cursed us with, our, with, with barrenness? We need to understand the nature of the story of salvation, so we can live confidently in it. Trust—it's a good seed. God's promises will come to fruition. There's lots of waiting. Lots of waiting, sometimes unbearable stretches of waiting. That waiting is not without purpose. There's not nothing going on. And trust in the outcome. I say that as a parent with children. So hard, isn't it, to trust in the outcome of your parenting? So hard, as husbands and wives, to trust. The long, long thing of marriage. So hard in the church to, result, uh, to trust in the fruit of our mission. Most evangelism happens in church out of a sense of anxiety and fear. In fact, we put anxiety and fear on people and call it evangelism. If you die tonight, you're going to heaven or hell. That's what we say. Some, I don't. A great deal of the way we try to live our story of salvation out is based on fear and anxiety. And Luke and the Gospels want to tell a totally different story. And basically it looks like this. Trust in the seed. The promises of God are trustworthy. Trust in the waiting, however long it takes. It's not a waste of time. There's a lot going on. And finally, trust In the outcome, you're not in control. It might not be as you expected, but it will be good. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, I thank you for Christ Church Vienna. Thank you that you've allowed me to begin to get to know what's happening here, the things that you have planted in the hearts of the people here. Thank you, Father, that there's been a lot of patient waiting and watching as things grow. Thank you, Lord, that there is already clearly an outcome, and it's good. So, Father, for each of us, would you remind us of what the story of salvation that we are all living in looks like? And give us confidence in it. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.